Welcome back, my friends. It's another episode of the Shema Podcast. And I have a topic that I have been wanting to do for so long. And the subject at hand is about the era Rav, this mixed multitude. I was fascinated by this concept early on because... As my early studies of the Parsha, you know, I learned about how the Jews had committed this awful sin with the golden calf. And then after the revelation at Mount Sinai, they continued to complain. They lacked Amuna. But then I started reading the Midrash, and I learned that the people that were really around these episodes that were creating these problems were the Ararav, this mixed multitude, these people that came with them out of Egypt. And they were the ones that committed all these things. And I was like, why is the Torah judging the entire Jewish people as saying, we did all these things? Why aren't we pointing out that, no, it was the bad converts that did it? And I've also read that they continue to sort of be reincarnated throughout the generations and creating various problems. But that's all I really know. And that's why I really wanted to explore this topic with you. And I got the perfect rabbi, Rabbi Cohen, coming on to join us. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories, as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars, demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Rabbi Cohen, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you're here. And before we get into the subject, for anyone who has not learned from you before, tell them how what you, teaching you do for Torch and how they can tap into what you're doing. So I do give a class on Sundays, 11 o'clock Central, AM Central Time. And anyone can join via Zoom. The class is on topics of the Zohar. We're doing a study of the Zohar now. And you can email me at rebyak32 at gmail.com, R-E-B-Y-A-C 32 at gmail.com. And then we'll email you any information in terms of how to log into the Zoom class. Awesome. It's a fantastic class. I make it whenever I can. If I can't make it, I watch the uh, the replay that you post on Facebook and YouTube. So I definitely encourage anyone listening to check out that class. And also, you have a book you've been working on. I got the honor of reading a, a draft of it early on, which just blew my mind. I remember giving it to my daughter saying, like, learn this and like everything else will be easy in life. And I think you're very, getting very close to publication. Yes, I'm on the final um, one of the, f- the first stages of the editing And God willing, it should be out this year. God willing, it's called Creating Angels. It's about how our thoughts create angels, which only pull us to the fruition of whatever it is, that thought. And basically, it delves into the level of creativity that we could actually utilize in our daily experience and also affect the world with that. I'm excited about it coming out. It's been a 20 plus year book that I've been working on and God willing, we'll see it born. Beautiful. Excellent. Okay. So the question at hand is, who is the Ararav? What exactly is going on here? How are they sort of like intertwined with the Jewish people now? Tell us what we need to know here, Rabbi. There's lots to discuss in terms of who the Ararav actually is. It starts with actually, there's a, just to know the first place that they are mentioned, which is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 and 38, where it says quite specifically, that when the children of Israel left, 
So it says they journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, and they were about 600,000 men, as we know. Also, a mixed multitude went up with them, and flock and cattle, very much livestock. That's how the verse reads in verse 38. So, Erev Rav literally means, of course, mixed multitude. Obviously, it's Gentiles. It's people who wanted to convert. So, there's basically two views about who these people were. One view, actually, the Zohar also brings, actually, a later on in Parshas B'Shalach, the very first verse in Parshat B'Shalach, that's when Paro sends the people. That's the literal translation of the verse. Paro sent the people from Egypt. And the Orachayim, one of the main commentators there, says, well, who's the people? Why doesn't it say Israel? When Paro sent Israel, or B'nai Yisroel, it says the people. So he comments that this is the Erev Rav, a mixed multitude, that Paro actually sent himself to come along with the Jewish people. Now, one view is, these are the hieroglyphic experts and sorcerers, that here is Paro sending, and the Orochayim says that explicitly, he sent them on a mission to hopefully convince the people to come back after they'd leave, and more in a deeper way, sabotage. So here's Paro sending, at least for one view, the sorcerers to sabotage the Jewish people. Get them! Okay? That's one view. Okay. Okay? And there's other places where it references that. Because when Moshe Rabbeinu was at Mount Sinai, and they'd sinned with the golden calf, as we know that the Eir of Rav were the main instigators of the golden calf, it's uh, God says to Moshe up at Mount Sinai, get away from me, go down. Because the people, your people, Amcha, your people have destroyed. Who is your people? Why is Hashem not saying our people, my people, the, you know? He says your people, the people that Moshe brought out have destroyed. They've caused a tremendous destruction. So here's where we have also a little niche about how the, the people, when it says just the people, Anywhere you'll see in the whole narrative of the Exodus, references to these mixed multitude. Now, another view of who the mixed multitude is, is that there were other Gentiles living in Egypt. And of course, they see how all of the plagues and the wonders and the miracles, the Jewish people are the winners, they're the champions. And of course, they want to side with the champions. So they wanted to tag along and go with them. Nothing else left here. Right, the locust ate the whatever what the hail didn't destroy. So there's, you know, uh, Egypt is laid desolate. Now, who are those people? I heard one view that Rabbi Kiva Tatz said, which was, listen, the Jewish people weren't the only slaves in Egypt, right? So there were other nations, other peoples from other nations that were also sucked into the slave labor force. So therefore, since the boss is gone. In other words, Egypt being the boss, there's no boss, there's no more CEO, the company's dismantled, where are we going to go? So these are the ex-slaves who basically didn't have a place to go, might as well go with the Jewish people, wherever they're going, we'll go. So the question is, were they on the level? Right, because the, the, the first thing you said is interesting that Pharaoh said people, which means it does sound like he sent them out. If they were not there to do some espionage work then he wouldn't have sent them, right? If they were just people wanting to go on their own free will, 
then he wouldn't have said that. So it sounds like, according to the Orachayim, all of the era of Rav were consistent of these people. And there were 400,000 of them. It's not just a couple of hundred, not 50, not five. 400,000, the Targum Yonason says, there were, you know, that much with their sheep and cattle, as the verse says. So that's a lot of people. It's a big, huge mass of people that are coming. And they are coming for the purpose to influence the people, the Jewish people. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm, you're probably going to get to this, but certainly Moshe Rabbeinu, on his level, knew what they were up to. Right? So there you have it. Okay. There's a passage in the Zohar, actually, in Parshat Bereshit, you know, uh, page 25, that he brings that Moshe... He wanted to bring, you know, the heir of Rav under the wings of the Shekhinah. So what was he thinking, right? He was thinking that they are righteous converts. He'll convert them for the sake of heaven. And then, because all the whole purpose, of course, to be a light unto the nations is to bring people under the wings of the divine presence, to bring people in. And then the highest thing, and Rabbi Nachman does point out, is when the Gentiles will praise God. What a greater thing it is than to have these group of people come with us and they will see the miracles and they'll get closer to the divine presence and praise God. So that was his thought in mind. Okay, now it's an argument if he asked Hashem first or did not ask Hashem. The Midrash brings down that after everything that went down with the golden calf, Hashem says to Moshe, I told you not to bring them. The Zohar says different. The Zohar says no. Moshe did not even ask. There wasn't even a conversation. He didn't take counsel with God whether he should bring them or not. So it's a kind of an argument there, okay? Right. And it makes sense if, if Hashem says, your people, that it was something he did independent of asking for Hashem's counsel. Right? Yes, or even if Hashem says, it's not a good idea, right? So he still, Moshe uh, basically decided in his own will that this is the greater goal of humanity, and we're going to bring them in. So that was the issue there with Moshe, okay? But of course, we know that what they had caused in the desert, they were doing what Paro had sent them to do, which was sabotage. Of course, they're very weak in their amuna and their faith and their connection. As a matter of fact, they started off pretty strong, actually. Actually, they were really into it. I saw one text from the uh, Rebbe that, but until Harsinai, that was it. They, they moved away. Because it was like too much for them. But in any case, with that we know the huge, tremendous sin that they were involved in when they caused the Jewish people to create the golden calf. As a matter of fact, the verse said explicitly, it says, after they made the golden calf, these are your gods, Israel. Now, who's speaking there? These are your gods. Obviously, it's not Jewish people. They're not speaking to themselves. It's the Erev Rav telling the Bnei Israel, these are your gods referring to the golden calf. So they were the main instigators of it. But we have to answer your question, which is a huge question, which is, if through all of the 10 times that they tested God, 10 times, why are the Jewish people whacked for it? Why did they get, you know, spanked? Yeah, and throughout history, and, and considering, like, Christianity took our Torah and called it the Old Testament, like, the entire world is reading this thinking it's like, it was the whole Jewish people. And it's like, Hashem should have defended us in the written Torah. It's like, no, it's just this group. So the Leshem, Rabbi Eliashuv, he's a big famed Kabbalist who wrote in this text that the Jewish people 
here they're coming from a slave mentality. Their consciousness wasn't, you know, they were free from the physical slavery, but it was still kind of, you know, the, the actual ideology of the whole idea of being free, they didn't quite grasp yet. And they saw through all of the 10 plagues, how much God was completely caring for each and every one of them. He was totally involved in each Jew. Now, it's very hard for the Jewish man to believe that. They weren't accepting it. That's why it took even 10 times and it still really didn't do it. Even the parting of the Red Sea, it still didn't do it. The idea that he expresses his language is God's love for them. He was showing his love for every single Jew. It was so overwhelming, the love that he was showing them. For example, the plague of the blood, the very first of the 10 plagues. If a Jew would take in a dish some water and he had a straw in it, and then an Egyptian would come right next to him in the same glass and put his straw and suck from it to get water, it would come out blood for the Egyptian. While the Jew is drinking the water from the same glass, the Egyptian is drinking blood. Hashem wanted to show each Jew, I know who you are, I know where you've come from, and we have a mission together. So it was basically telling each Jew how much he loved each Jew. Same thing by all the rest of the plagues. None of the plagues struck the Jewish people. The plague of darkness, a Jew would walk through the curtain of darkness into the Egyptian quarter where they were living, the Egyptians living, in order to go to the house to see the jewelry in the house. As he would approach this dark curtain, of course, he would have light. No matter where he would move, there would be a spotlight above him giving him light. So like God is involved in the individual. So listen up. And Moshe still, they had problem being convinced. As we know, the four-fifths of the Jewish population were wiped out in the plague of darkness because they didn't believe. They didn't believe God loved them so much and he was going to take them out. And they were also comfortable with their master beating them only five times a day as opposed to ten times a day. They felt they were well off enough. Anyways, they died. But the Jewish people going through the desert, they were testing God in what way? Of course, the Erev Rav would influence them. Where's your, mo- where's your meat now? Where's your meat? You got to have meat, Shay. <laughs> where's the beef? Got to have some good beef. Right? Actually, they only got quail, but okay. So in any case, every time the Erev Rav were pushing a, an agenda, water, meat, traveling too much, no God, Moses is dead. We need no God, Shay. Right? That was Edward G. Robinson. He play, played Natan and thinking... Uh, in the Cecil B. DeMille classic, right? He was the heir of Roth. There was, he was, he was. Right, let, me, let me ask you a question. So it seems like the men had some serious relationship issues, not being able to trust Hashem. Was this equal with the women? Or? Not at all. The women were completely on track the whole time. They had no decree to die in the desert. They went straight to Eretz Israel after the 40-year tour in the desert with their Shmagegi husbands until they died. Right? Okay. So it was all the... <laughs> the men. women went... They, 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 listen, at the golden calf, you know, Aaron was trying to stall out. He knew that the, he saw Hur, his brother-in-law, die. He, get, he got killed because they, they came to Hur. And Hur said, Avodah Forbidden! No way! Idolatry! <laughs> they killed him, threw stones at him, and, and Aaron says, oh boy. Okay. And because it came to Aaron, and Aaron tried to stall him out. Now, Aaron, how did he stall him out? The language in the verse says, go to your wives and go get the gold from your wives. He knew the wives were not going to do it. They all went to their tents going, give me gold, give me gold, I want the gold. 
give me gold, give me gold. And the women threw them out with a rolling pin and maybe some dishes on the way out of the tent. They would not accept it. Well, so the men were pulling it off their, their earrings. They had earrings in those times. Right. Were literally pulling it off, drawing you know, blood to give that gold for the golden calf. But So this is the era Rav's spouses? So listen, or? let's, 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 let's okay. go back. So here's the Jewish people getting all this love, but they couldn't handle God giving them love in that way. So they had to see, basically what they did is silence is agreement. In other words, here's a campaign, let's make a, a new God. So basically they kept silent for the most part. And to see that even if they would do this, would God still love them? That's called testing God. If I do this, are you still going to love me? That's called testing God. So basically... Because they were overwhelmed with this love, they had this, no, it can't be God loves us. Totally, like this. They were getting mana from heaven. They, the clouds were protecting them on all six sides. You know, I mean, the, the kind of care that he was affording them was beyond. So part of the, why Israel was, it's accounted as if they did it, was because they were allowing it to happen to see if God would still love them, if his love would still be there for them in that way. So that's why all the times that they tested him and they're together, even though the heir of Rav was instigating these things, they went along with it because on their level, they were testing God. That's why they allowed it to happen instead of saying, you know, we've had enough of you guys. I think you better go take a left in that direction and you better find right. another country right. for yourself. We'll they didn't do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll call you for lunch <laughs> one day. We'll be right back. Okay, yeah, okay. So that, that that makes sense. So they were they were complicit. We were complicit, just because we didn't intervene or try to stop it or get them or separate ourselves from exactly, that. exactly. So we allowed those things to take place, and Jews did take place in those things. The Vodazora was a hard hard thing to shed in those days. The taiva for it would be tantamount to my. I think my father in law gave the language if, if I could uh, go out of the PG rating here as spiritual pornography. It's a very addictive, okay? It's a cosmic high of sorts that we don't understand these days. But in those days, it was a very huge predominant desire. And so even when they were going through the Sea of Reeds, I heard this from Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, that the, the tribe of Dan, who was the last of the tribes in the procession of the whole march going through, they had getchkas in their backpacks. They had little idols. They still hang on to the idols in their backpacks. Okay, in other words, and they still hold on to him. Hashem still, okay, okay, fine. You know, he let him, he let him come and hang along, of course, but they, they were still like a, an attachment to him. So some Jews got caught up in it, many Jews. Okay, so I assume the reason Hashem was let go of these things or overlooked them or was compassionate about them is because of where we come from after being in Egypt and slavery. And but we, were, we held on those core things of... Yeah, these are, these are levels of tuma. These are levels of defilement, levels of things that still need to be fixed. And God is very, very patient. He says, we'll get to it. We'll fix it. We'll fix okay. it. But in the meantime, all of these things were going on. That the way I look at it simply is the Erevrav would basically attach themselves to those who were of weaker faith. And that's how they would go ahead and push their agenda for more meat, water, or whatever. So... Of course, they would attach themselves to those who have smaller amuna and go, hey, why don't you go ask Moshe, where's our meat? They would, and then the guy would go, oh, okay, because he's a weaker faith. Very much like when you see a cell under a microscope and it's being invaded by a germ. The germ surrounds 
the cell, and they look for the weakest place to get in. Same thing by the Jewish people in general, that here's this outside influence looking for the weakest spots to get in and influence. Of course, they found them, plenty of them, to go ahead and institute their plan. Okay. And Moshe did give them a legitimate conversion. Yes, they all had a legitimate conversion. They all had a a bris milah because he assumed that they were righteous converts and they were doing it for the right reasons. That's what the Zohar says. But what really happened was it always goes back to uh, the, the word Avraham. Avraham, you know, was the first Jew. And there's a reference to actually Avraham in the very beginning in Genesis when it says, and this is the heaven and the earth when God created them. Behibaram is the word. And there's a small hay there. Behibaram means when he created them. And in there, there's a small hay, which is very sm- strange. You always want to know when there's small letters and big letters. So here there was a, a small letter. And the small letter alludes to the fact that when he takes in the converts, you have to be make sure that they are on the level. Because if you're not, then what happens is you're actually taking the holy sparks, the divine presence, and shoving it more deeper into the husks, we call, or the klipa, which is goes to a whole big thing about, you know, that our mission here is to elevate the sparks. Let's say just, you know, it goes way back to before predating the the whole Genesis thing where God created certain vessels and he influxed them with so much light that they basically shattered and their elements, their sparks, fell into what became this world and the physical realm that we see here. Basically, everything consists of these divine sparks in it. Now, these divine sparks, you can either elevate them, which is the goal of the Jewish people. Now, when all of the sparks are elevated from this cataclysmic event predating Genesis called the shattering of the vessels, when all of those sparks are gathered, that's when the final redemption is. So everybody's on a mission when they go to a restaurant, eat food, or they wherever they go, wherever they live, they're elevating sparks. So the idea here is even non-Jews, Gentiles, have, there are holy souls in many Gentile people that need to be elevated. So he thought these were them. Great. He circumcised them. When you circumcise them, you're making them whole in a physical way by giving them a circumcision. Now, he didn't know that they weren't on the level. And so that hay of Hibaram was cast more into the dark side because of his action of bringing these heir of Rav. He actually caused a, a worse mess that now, really, he has to fix. So, for one, I'm surprised, that, as I said in the beginning, that Moshe Rabbeinu was not able to see more clearly at his level. But I'm wondering, I've read, I don't know where I read this from, that Moshe was a reincarnation of Noach. Yes, I've seen that too. Okay, and so what was Noach's tikkun to do if he came back in this world? I'm just spitballing an idea here. You can see if it makes sense or if you... One of the things he did not do was really work hard to reach out to the other people around him. He, right? didn't, he didn't pray for them. He didn't pray for them. He didn't work to, to elevate them. He just, from my understanding... So I can imagine maybe so if he comes back and does Tukun and comes back and now he's Moshe. And now he has sort of like this this biased drive to bring in the other people. Yes. Yes. Because the na- our goal is that all the nations should praise God. 
what's wrong, what's the difference these guys or those guys, right? All, the goal of the man, of the whole situation is to get, like when Yisro came and he visited and he came to convert, Yisro, who was like the, uh, the PhD of idolatry, he wrote the book on it. And he saw what happens with the Jewish people and everything that they went through. And he came to actually do the conversion. And when he came, so, you know, it says like, you know, Moshe was telling him all the stories. So he got goosebumps. Some people think that's a positive thing. Some people think that's a negative thing. But the idea was Moshe, Yisro also said, wow, praise God. And that was a very high moment when Yisro, who was like the master Sith Lord of the dark side, has now jumped fence and came to Judaism and praised God. There's nothing higher than that. Okay, so that happened before the sin with the calf. Yes, yeah, because he came to Har Sinai before Har Sinai, according okay. to one opinion. So that was a, obviously a very positive experience of seeing what could happen. Yes, and it's like, that's the goal. Rabbi Nachman brings it down. I think it's Torah Dalit, I'm not sure. But he says, yeah, our goal is to be a light to the nations, means we have to teach the Goyim Emunah, and part of that amuna is being grateful and praising, as those are the levels of service, to have that relationship with God on a higher level. So in a sense, you know, he was in the program, but sometimes it's always better to ask God's opinion first. And for some reason, and it's meant to be, because in the scheme of all of humanity, obviously, since it happened, it was meant to be. That these heir of Rav were supposed to come, do what they do, and and we're still in it now. Okay, we're still in the era of Rav. It says, you know, I just looked at a, a Rabbi Nachman text. Who are they really in a soul form? In other words, where's the root of these people? Because that's the whole problem here is that on a, with the, the different branches of souls coming in this world, you have the one of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yokov that were a part of. And once, I guess, Moshe converted them, they became totally integrated with us at a, at a spiritual level. Correct. A spiritual level, I'm not sure. A spiritual level, how can they be integrated? They became Jewish. Yeah, they married and intermarried. But when, when someone converts, then they get a Jewish neshama Correct. that attaches to that Correct. Branch. Correct. Right. So the question is, what do they do with that neshama? Right? And the responsibility, of course, is on the courts who bring this person in and give him that Jewish neshama. You know, so, of course, there are many stories where this, why this person is coming to convert. So a lot of times, these are oppressed souls that did something in a previous lifetime, but they have a holy place. They did some kind of merit in a previous lifetime, and they're coming now to to come into the fold of the Jewish people. The Erev Rav, however, uh, Rabbi Nachman says, the, the mother of the Erev Rav is, get this, buckle your seatbelts, is Lil. Lil, as we know, was the first wife of Adam Arisha. And when, Adam, when, when, when Hashem wanted to create an aspect of free will for Adam, so the language that is brought down that Adam had a first wife, she was not such a physical, she wasn't a physical wife, she was a spiritual kind of thing. They were all, you're talking about in ethereal form, and, you know? So, so the first wife of uh, Adam was married, and then they had an argument. That was the first argument not, um, that's at least recorded in our Torah Shabal Peh in our oral law. And of course, Hashem in the argument took, took Lil, I can't, I don't, I, we don't say her whole name, okay, and cast her out of the Garden of Eden. And that's when he put Adam to sleep, created from Adam's side or rib, Eve, and then they were getting married in the Garden of Eden. And Lil, who was outside of the Garden of Eden, looking in and seeing her ex get married. And of course, she's upset to a light way. She's very angry. And therefore, 
Her direction now is to destroy Adam. She's mad at God, and she's going to do it through destroying man. And how does she do that? Through seduction. Okay, that means she's an angelic force or an influence that gets into man's mind and his heart and influences him in a negative direction towards his sexual impulses. Now, Rabbi Nachman calls her, this force, the mother of the Erevra. Okay, that's one possible source that you can understand that in a certain realm. She's coming, these people are coming from pure evil. And in a worse way, the Zohar says, the Perush of Metoch Medvash says that they are from Amalek. In other words, Amalek came way before, actually. Alifaz married Timna and had a son called Amalek. Amalek is the sworn enemy of the Jewish people. That's their whole way of life. Everything about them is getting back at God. And therefore, to get back at God, we destroy the messenger of God on this planet. And therefore, we get God out of the picture if we destroy the messenger. Every single thing that the Jewish people, in terms of the Jewish heart and Torah, stands for, they are against. Now, of course, Amalek, of course, they, the, the, whoever his family was, died, reincarnated into the Erev Rav. So they come, the Erev Rav, their souls from a previous lifetime, were from Amalek. So you can imagine now, these people are dead against anything that has to do with Torah values and religion whatsoever. Okay? Right. Okay. I'm still surprised that Moshe Rabbeinu was not able to sort of look in and see, like, these people so are So good. Right. You, you have a great question. And the, I don't have an answer, but I can just, just saying an idea, a possible idea of, you know, shooting from the hip, is that it's meant to be. Hashem wanted to. There's yeah, obviously, moments. he obscures even the, the minds of certain Sadiqim to allow this to happen. Even though that Hashem says, according to the Midrash, I told you not to bring them. But listen, Hashem could have stopped it way in the beginning. He could have wiped them out also in the plague of uh, darkness. He didn't. Okay? He allows these kind of things to take place for a reason. Okay? And it's obviously for the ultimate tikkun of the Jewish people and the tikkun of the world. Okay. They are, I, now, to, 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 let's, get, let's fast forward dramatically. Because, you know... Israel now, the secular government, all of the insiders know that they are the Erev Rav government. They are a klipa, they are a husk, they are anti-religious and anti-Jewish education to an extreme that you could not imagine, okay? The ignorance in Israel for Yiddishkeit, you know, I hear about things shifting now. I don't know to what degree, but in a majority way, there's still a huge degree of people who are influenced in this manner. I've heard this before, too, that in the current generations, especially the final generations, they'd be people that would be reincarnated, the era rod, they'd be reincarnated and be in positions of power. And 100%. They know how to do it. They know how to do the whole machine. Okay? They know how to influence. They studied Dale Carnegie when they were in the desert. They all had books and tests on it. Right? Right. They knew how to influence people. Then they knew how to get themselves in high positions. They had money anyways. Whether they were the slaves or they were the sorcerers. If they were the sorcerers, they for sure had money. Slaves, I don't know. Maybe they got gold from there. Whatever it is, they were able to get themselves to the high positions of leadership and power in order to make sure they steer the Jewish people in a direction as much as they can away from Torah values. Now, have they been being introduced into the system 
since then, or is it just these final days where they're coming back? They've been coming in every single generation. Okay. As a matter of fact, the Zohar brings down Moshe Abrabeinu has to come back in every generation and influence those guys and try to fix them. In other words, Moshe, way to go. You blew it. And because you blew it and you brought these people, you're not even going into the land of Israel. And you have to come back in every single generation and work on those guys because they are in positions of power and influence and you have to fix them. This is why I was thinking as I was reading this Zohar, every single outreach organization in every city is an aspect of the soul of Moshe Rabbeinu trying to work on those guys. In other words, where they join with the people of the Federation, right? All the Federations who are, I saw one that was religious. I met one that was religious. He wasn't there for a long time. They got rid of him right away because they want, they're pushing secular. The idea of the Federations is push only a secular state. They don't want anything that has to do with religion and Torah values. And here are people in the outreach. Here we are, like, you know, like in Houston with Torch. We're working on trying to get people and people either influenced by the Erev Rav. If they're not the Erev Rav themselves, then those are usually the big, big uh, people make shakers. They could be the shakers in the various communities. Okay, so... That's what you mean when you said Moshe has to come in every generation through some positive spiritual. Yeah, so I'm saying it could be like one Godel Ador, which would be a great thing. We're totally orphaned, this generation. We do not have a Godel Ador that can deal with it at this point in time. There is no one, okay? Because uh, Rabbi Nachman gets into a whole deal that, the, you know, the Godel Ador is like the heart of the Jewish people. And he is the one that basically is able to go ahead and he inspires the Jewish people nor to be more inspired, but it happens to be the influence. That's only if he's around. If he's around, he can inspire, keep it, the Jewish people inspired. But if he's not around, there's a cool-off. And then if you have a cool-off, so then you're prone to the influences of the external forces, the Erev Rav, who are going to basically come and cool-off. Amalek is the cool-off. Amalek is the people who want to cool-off a person's fire. Okay. Besides creating, you know, one of their ways of how they do things is create separation. What do you mean by that? Okay, so I'm going to give you a hint. This is a big rule, okay? And you have to understand the Erev Rav doesn't necessarily have to be a secular Jew in a governmental position. Rabbis are also Erev Rav. I hate to bring that to you, okay? That's why it's Rav, Erev Rav. Rav is like a rabbi. There are rabbis who are also Erev Rav, okay? Their souls are Erev Rav. They might, you might look, they might be shuffling very nicely. But if somebody comes and you have a question, you know, my family is not so religious and they invited me to come over there. And, you know, what do I do in terms of, let's say, my kids are going to get influenced by them. And, and if the rabbi says, stay away from them, that's Erev Rav. Because if they are instituting any kind of degree of separation, you have to watch out. It doesn't necessarily have to be they are for sure Erev Rav. But any time any influence wants to create a degree of separation as opposed to unity, you have to be suspect. The serpent creates a disunity in the Garden of Eden. He wants to create a separation. Because our whole function, our goal right now at this point should be to unify each other and not try to look for the differences in each other. I think, I think part of this whole plan 
the universal plan, why God allowed this to happen. One reason is Rabbi um, Potash, Rabbi Shlomo Potash, he told me, I'm like, what's with this hair of government? I asked him. I'm like, come on, I can't stand it anymore, these guys. And he told me they're there for a reason and they're doing certain things that we can't do. Now, I don't know what those things are, okay? okay. I could guess he didn't say but for some reason, they're meant to be there for the time being. And they're doing certain things that we, as Torah-observant Jews, cannot do. Okay? okay? Now, that could be a lot of things, like defense. There are aspects that things that they are doing that we cannot do. That's what a husk is, a shell. A, a, in a certain sense, it's weird to look at it, and we don't necessarily, I don't necessarily understand it fully. But these klipot, as husks, very much like a husk of an orange or a corn, ear of corn, right? right? They serve a purpose for a time being, don't they? They protect. Yeah, that's true. They protect right. until a while. But you can't get caught up in the husk. The problem is people get caught up in the husk and they don't understand that there's a meat to that. There's a corn. There's an ear of corn here to eat. There's an orange inside. Meanwhile, all the husk says is, look at me, look at me, look at me. I am it. So people could get caught up in that. I'm losing a very crude metaphor. Right, but it makes but sense. It serves a purpose for a time being as a protection from something, from worse things, from bugs, whatever it have you. Eventually it needs to be taken off and then exposing the real fruit. Okay, so with that analogy, it makes sense because you have this era of government in Israel that is doing these things to keep Israel safe. And then look what's happened over the last, I mean, the... Yeshiva world has been blossoming. It's like the, the fruit is getting richer and growing and growing. And that klipa, that shell of the government has been serving its purpose. When Mashiach comes, you pull away the shell, then the fruit's there. Yes. I mean, we're, we don't appreciate the shell right now. The husks, it seems, because they have, a, they have another function, which is they, to remain in power, because that's what husks do. They want to suck up all the light. Right. Suck up all the energy for themselves, beef themselves up because they think that they're the real thing. So part of that doing is, of course, they create a system of division among the Jewish people. These are the religious. These are the secular. And through their propaganda means they get the secular to hate the religious and the religious to hate the secular. OK, and then they even get the religious in the religious groups to, to, to divide and the secular also to divide. And if everybody's busy fighting each other, and we know this in the world in general, as long as the, 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 the people have not become aware yet in their consciousness level that they're being played, okay, that pitted against each other, right? So then they won't pay attention to the husk that's basically robbing from all of them. There's another Zohar which says that, you know, we've talked about the, the Lil is their mother, they're from a Malek in a soul form, a reincarnated form. Also, another reincarnation that blends in there also is the descendants of Cain, Cain in the Garden of Eden. It says that they will be the heir of Rav in the end of days. There's another passage in the Zohar. And they basically will be stealing Israel's money through taxes and more taxes and other decrees. Okay? It says that the heir of Rav will be making more decree upon more decree, harsher decree upon harsher decree until, like, until they pop, okay? They'll be issuing very, very harsh decrees on the Jewish people, on their own people, with them wanting to keep the power, their main agenda. I'm telling you, most of these people in the Knesset, I think 80% of their energy is spent on not building the country, 
but keeping their power. Okay? And part of that, though, of course, is making sure that there's division among the, the people. As opposed to, hey, man, you know, we came back after 2,000 years of exile. We're back here in the, country, in the land. What an amazing thing. We've all gone through hell being out there. You know, Europe was a terrible time. How we were bashed and beaten and, and massacred in Europe. And everybody's messed up. Everybody's, we're all messed up. No one's got the real direction. So you know something? You could give your brother the benefit of the doubt. The, the people who are religious, the way that they wanted to keep hold of their connection to God and Judaism was to go ghetto. Okay. Okay. That's how you feel you need to practice your Judaism. And meanwhile, the secular, they felt that, you know, may, let's get rid of anti-Semitism by joining the outside world, where we'll become doctors, lawyers, or whatever. And they have a different direction. Okay? And then you'll have the people who are completely secular, which is the era of Rav is a major influence in, to completely secularize Judaism. They did not want any religious Jews in Israel. And there's books written. Perfidy was a, a case, you know, where they, they were offered by Eichmann to buy Jews. And they said, no, we don't want the religious Jews of Poland. They sold out their brothers. Okay? That's Erev Rav. Selling out your brother is Erev. Okay? So just to let this point. So instead of trying to create unity, hey, we're all brothers. Point, the point here is they just like to make more and more division. So what's the antidote to this? The idea, really, obviously, the remedy is love. That's their ultimate remedy, to love every Jew. Okay, and we say it every single morning before we pray. Which means, behold, I now accept upon myself to love every Jew. The Baal Shem Tov, he said, those are, there's three loves you got to work on your whole life to make it the highest it could possibly be. Love of Torah, love of God, and love of the Jewish people. So love of the Jewish people, I don't, I think is a, is a, could be a challenge for some people. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what about loving the Jews who are part of this era of? We have to love them too then, right? You know, that's Moshe Rabbeinu's thing. God left that for Moshe Rabbeinu. He says, Moshe, you are coming back at the end of days and you are going to fix this. Okay? So you need a Moshe Rabbeinu to come and fix them in the way that they need to be fixed. The meantime, what to do, how to deal with them? First, sure, the f- number one, you make sure even them, if they are Jewish, I don't even know. There's people who say this one's a mums or this one's mom was a reform convert. They say that about a lot of people who are in gov- high positions in government. They don't even know if they're Jewish. Right. They look like a Jew. They smell like a Jew. They eat a bagel like a Jew. But are they really Jewish? That's the question. From our point of view, we go with, let's say, they have a chazak of being Jew, you smile and you love, okay? No matter what. That's our first job to do, okay? Okay, so, and the other, and, and to do anything you can to dissolve division as much as possible. Smile and love. Give them a different impression. The religious Jews, really, it's upon them. I mean, it's upon the secular too, but you can't blame them because you understand that they've been fed information about the religious that is not the best kind of information that yeah. breeds hate. You can't blame them. I mean, you can try, you know, there, there are many programs that have tried to be instigated to like go door to door in secular neighborhoods as a, a religious people. Take vans, go to a secular neighborhood and knock on doors in Israel. To try, hi, my name's Chaim, want to talk to you, just, you know, have a connection with you. And if, if you ever want to learn or anything, just, you know, try to break the ice. 
there's still a lot of content. A lot. It goes way high. It's way deep. You understand when you turn a person's mind a certain way, it's very hard to change. And the other way is, listen, it's brought down in the end of days until Moshe Rabbeinu comes and fixes them, that they're going to issue decrees. And the only thing that I can think of is that there's a phrase that brings down in, I believe it's Mishle or maybe it's Ecclesiastes. I'm not sure where the verse is, but it says to this degree, a man oppresses another man to his detriment. Think about this. A man oppresses another man. That's the first part of the phrase. And then the second part of the phrase is to his detriment. So the question is, if a man is oppressing another man, what do you need those last words for to his detriment? To whose detriment? So if you're thinking it's person A who is oppressing person B, it's to B's detriment. Well, that's an obvious. You don't need to... King Solomon and his huge wisdom and every letter is weighed and measured. It's, talking about it's, a, it's a detriment to the one who's doing the oppressing. Actually, yes. So in, in a spiritual way, that is explained. The Shem Yishmuel explains that when there's an oppression that is going on, okay, we call that super suck. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? That we are here to suck sparks. We're all doing whatever, wearing your clothes, eating the food, right? Doing good deeds. Every time you eat the food and you do a good deed, you think a good thought, you elevate the sparks that are in that food. Every time you say a blessing over the food, you're elevating the sparks in that. We're here to elevate the sparks and all the sparks have been gathered. So then we go home. Final redemption. We see the light. So the idea here is when the Jewish people, and we've seen it throughout history, anytime they're in another nation, such Egypt, for example, which was the superpower, when they got oppressed through slavery for the 210 years that they were there, they got oppressed. When, they, when an oppression occurs to that degree, that's called the super suck. That means the sparks of holiness that was in the klipa, the shell, the Egyptian government, para, get sucked into the Jewish people completely. And then when the Jewish people leave, like they left Egypt, they take all the sparks with them, leaving the place completely desolate and it never rose again. Egypt never rose to be a superpower again, period, gone. Same thing by Spain. We got with the um, Inquisition. We were there. We were prominent. We were government leaders and everything. And there were holy people in the government too, real big rabbis, right? But when that happened, the expulsion, we took all the sparks with us. Spain, which was the Spanish Armada, right? They were the superpower, gone. Poland had an empire, gone, right? Europe, gone. Europe is gone. We see it falling as we yeah. speak. Yeah. It's, it's completely, you know. So us insiders are going, yeah, you didn't treat us so nicely, you know. How much, you know. I feel bad for the populace because they don't, they're clueless, you know. But the idea of them being any kind of position of power or influence is gone. So the idea here is the same thing by the era of Rav. When they issued decrees against the Jewish people, okay, and it, and it might get harsher and harsher according to the Zohar. It's supposed to get pretty harsh. So when they issue these kind of harsh decrees, so that results in a super suck. That means all of the holy sparks will now go to the Jewish people, and then they are going to lose their power. So the, the, the two options are love, and then, of course, then when, when the, if, if decrees happen, you know, you, you take it with, the, with love. That it's all part of this, the process of the super suck. You know, we pray that Hashem shields us and protects us. And, you know, and there is one thing also that's very important. I mentioned in today's class, I said earlier, you know, in the end of the days, in the times of the Mashiach, in the era of Rav, we are ruling 
currently the Israeli government, the Israeli people. The end of days, you know, a lot of the big sages says, whoa, the wonders that are going to happen when the Mashiach comes. Please, God, I don't want to be there. It's like kind of like a steer. It's, it's a contradiction. They're going like, whoa, the end of days? Oh, please, Hashem, I don't want to be there. Please don't make me be there. <laughs> <laughs> because this birth pangs is a process, yeah. right? And they, so they go to the rabbis and are like, why are you saying that, right? What are people going to do? What should people do to protect themselves? What's the ultimate protection? Deeds of loving kindness. That was the main thing. One of the big things is make sure you're always doing deeds of loving kindness and that will assure your protection through all of the whatever happens. Right. And not categorizing Jews. We're all one people. Seeing us united. Supporting outreach since apparently Moshe Rabbeinu so is Outreach should be really big because I would say us. yes because whatever you can do. Yeah. Because listen, they could be an aspect or an element of, on a soul level of Moshe Rabbeinu trying to influence the era of Rav and fix them. Get them to learn Torah. Get them to, you know, yeah. get, get them involved and get them to do an act of kindness. Get them to say a bracha, whatever you could do. It's just another little step in influencing them. Because obviously, if Moshe Breno needs to come back and fix them, they want it. They should be fixed, not destroyed. Right. It's not the way of tzaddikim. It's, it's never been the way of Moshe Rabbeinu. People have claims like that. It's like amazing how Moshe Rabbeinu put up with Datan and Aviram the whole years. Yeah. 40 years they're trying to get him. 40 years they're conspiring in their tent. What are we going to do? How are we going to get Moshe? I know. Let's put out the mana outside and see on Shabbos and we'll, we'll disprove Moshe. We have a campaign to disprove Moshe. Because Moshe says it's not coming on Shabbos, the mana, right? So they went out early in the morning with their little portions of mana, right? And spread it all out before anybody got up and got out of their tents, expecting that they would come out and go, Oh, what do I see here? Some mana. And it's Shabbos. And they would get that on CNN and NBC and every single mainstream media. Some mana was found in the desert. So Moshe Bain is completely disproven and disqualified, right? That's what they, they, they did. For 40 years they did that. It happened to be in that specific incident. God brought birds to eat up all of the mana before anybody came out. Right? Uh, God's got it under control. God, well, no matter what they're planning. no, And they are planning. God has it totally under control. Right? He's pulling all the strings. He says, basically, God is saying, I got this. And then we have to have trust. Which is probably the bigger thing before love and Accepting with love is emuna. Like, you know, at the end of days, Hashem is going like, to, we're all going to be holding on a rope and he's going to shake the rope. So if you got emuna, you'll hang on. You know, if you don't have emuna, you know, weak emuna, you're not going to hang on. So you have to hang on to, to Hashem that he's got this. No matter what we see, no matter what we hear, no matter what is going on, and God willing, we'll, uh, we'll see it through. Beautiful. Rabbi, thank you for discussing this. Explaining what, what it is, I never really quite understood it, heard bits and pieces. But in the end, doing what you did, which is bring it back to the purpose of the Arab and then what our, our role is and how to how to rectify it, which is beautiful. I appreciate it so much. Thank you once again for coming on. Pleasure. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, 
you may email him at president at torchweb.org.